Welcome to the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the And we're back with the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast. We, pre- we appreciate you tuning in today's episode. This is episode 203, episode 203. Uh, Ryan, weather's getting good, man. Texas is warming up. Oil prices are up. We got gas facilities supposedly coming to Odessa. Man, it's uh, it's good news out in the oil patch right now, man. Everything uh, seems to be looking up, moving in the right direction. Good day, man. Good week. I'm excited uh how are you doing on your end man i know you had a good fishing trip this past weekend yeah i did i did caught some fish went out to uh lake whitney um caught some stripers and uh, that was fun and you know it's i tell you what though it's cold still here in texas man it's crazy you know it's you sit around and i think it was like 60 degrees something like that and that cold snap you know that we've you know stopocalypse whatever you call it from february we're still kind of feeling the effects i guess it kind of pushed everything back until i mean we're here the we're here on may the third i think it was 80 something yesterday it got up to uh but uh we went out fishing saturday morning it was still 64 degrees i think most of the day so we'll see uh i think today we're getting up to 87 so maybe maybe we're getting into may and we're gonna get out of that cold snap but uh all's well man you know it was nice to fish with people who got to catch fish yeah, well, it's gonna be interesting. Is um, you know, obviously, if I go with you, it's I got to do all the work, so it's nice to catch people. You know, people catch fish. You know, I I don't know if yes, we could, like, we do. I don't know if we I don't know if we actually kept tabs uh, on the last trip. Like, how many fish did you catch? How many did I catch? I think uh, I don't know, man. I, I I don't I don't recall you catching that many fish, man. I think looking back I, at it, yeah, you might have outcaught me that very very last trip in May. You might have outcaught me. It's the first time in forever but you know you might have you might have slightly uh, slightly beat me that time well so i'll tell you right now i, I would not complain for a 64 degree weather uh, in june i, I got a feeling it's going to be <laughs> a little warmer oh, well, man, i know well ryan uh i saw an interesting article that came out uh talking about the federal oil and gas lease ban and uh, apparently this has become uh, an issue in Wyoming. I say become. It's an issue in Wyoming. Uh, more so, you know, my interest has been in the Mexico side because of the permit. But Wyoming also has a lot of federal lease and lease lands. And uh, the ban is creating quite a bit of pain for them as well. Um, and so there's a guy uh, named Gordon. He's going to go testify before the Senate on the impacts of this moratorium. And he's talking about how it's effect, it's going to affect income for schools, um, energy, and um, in general, these are the sorts of things that I was hoping to see um, more often in New Mexico, more conversations happening around this so that people would understand the impact that this is going to have. Um, but it seems like in Wyoming, it is at least coming to the forefront now, and, and hopefully, uh, hopefully it'll pioneer some changes for those federal lands also in New Mexico and, and other areas. Yeah. And with prices where they are, which is better than most of us thought they would have been this time uh, last year, you know, it, it's really weird to see the government putting the squeeze on it, you know? And so you've got folks that uh, would probably like to deploy a little bit of capital, but they're, they're not getting the opportunity. And as you mentioned, um, that goes back to, you know, we, we always think of oil and gas as being 
a big business than it is, but it definitely always goes back to the little guy, right? The, the local folks there in Wyoming or in New Mexico or wherever they're at, they're trying to make a buck. Um, you have that on top of the fact that you have, um, it's not, it's not only just the people in the business, it's people outside the business, the ancillary jobs, the hotels, the gas stations, you know, um, the trucking companies who are working for oil and gas companies, all those things are, are tied to our industry. And so anytime we see uh, the, these bans and uh, it, whether it's a, a ban or just a cutback in drilling because of what happened last year, you know, there's all kinds of industries that are, are impacted. Yeah. So here's two things that Gordon said, uh, the announcement by the Bureau of land management to not hold the second quarter oil and gas lease sale due to an ongoing review order by president Biden is disappointing, disheartening, and not surprising. Federal reviews of anything typically take months and sometimes years. And what is most disappointing is that the Department of Interior could have chosen to review the federal oil and gas leasing program while, while conducting quarterly sales. Instead, they chose to tighten the financial choke of revenue that would normally flow to the state from lease sales, all the while refraining from consulting with the very states and communities that are directly impacted by these decisions. So, um, yeah, he's not happy about it. Uh, and I completely understand where he's coming from. This uh tough for some of these companies that are trying to rebound from losses that they you know had last year and opportunities there all the oil prices are there the gas prices are there demand seems to be coming back and uh, these uh these lease bans won't won't allow them so it's tough well, and it's not just you know it's not just new mexico it's wyoming we had a story i think what a couple weeks ago about louisiana mm -hmm. yeah. so it's it's you know all parts of the, the oil patch so it's not just um Something narrow here or there. It's just kind of all over the place. All right, Ryan. So uh, interesting news coming out of Canada. So we know the Keystone pipeline. We know it was shut down. Um, there is a, another pipeline that was 645 mile line. It's line five owned by Enbridge. Um, and it's a key piece of crude delivery network from, uh, from Alberta's oil fields to refiners in the U.S. Midwest and Eastern Canada. And uh, Whitmer uh, demanded um, that that pipeline stop uh, being used. And there's a lot of environmentalists. Apparently, it goes through a, um, uh, a one of the, the Great Lakes. That's, huh? your favorite, that's your favorite governor, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, she is lovely. Uh, so Lake Michigan, connect. Uh, it goes under Lake Michigan. And... A lot of people want them to stop using it and it is creating some some issues because the um canadian uh officials are saying that no this this thing has been going for like 68 years uh they've been keeping up with it and it's a major source of energy for them and they're saying under no circumstances can it be shut down and Whit whitmer is calling for it to be shut down and so uh, it's gonna be interesting to see how do they deal with this international stuff because canada has rights invested in this line. You have Americans that are invested in this line, an American company, or at least American entities like Enbridge that are invested in the line. I mean, can Whitmer shut it down? And will it cause international conflict if she does? Because there may be contracts that won't allow that. So I don't know. It's going to be interesting development to see how this works, um, you know, over the coming, coming weeks and months. Yeah. I think you, you know, I've equated this before in, the message I'm not sure really resonates, but we have to stop and kind of start thinking. Now, Whitmer is obviously a state official, but you know, oil and gas and energy professionals, especially gas professionals, have to start considering 
how to handle stuff on the state level. And I, I go to marijuana laws as, as the kind of the, the way to think about this, you know, um, states have decriminalized marijuana and, uh, and on the federal level, it's a crime. Okay. Well, on the state level, especially here in Texas, um, you know, we need to start thinking about energy policy as a state issue and to really push the federal government out of our way as much as possible. If we don't, you know, you're going to see, um, bad legislation like we've seen in New Mexico with the federal lands, or we're not careful. We will see some kind of federal adaptation like we had on Stuart Turley a few weeks ago of this Colorado rules. And so, you know, you're going to see stuff with Whitmer because she's obviously a, a liberal and you know, pushing this for whatever reason. Um, but in Texas, where we want energy policy to be good, we need to get good policy, but also we need to make sure that we're keeping the federal government out as much as possible. And I don't think that energy professionals really, uh, oil and gas professionals are really understanding the potential that's there, which is that if we continue to let the federal government oversee or impact our industry, um, then the potential is that event, that will eventually be overregulated and only the big boys will can be, able, be able to realistically compete. So that's, what, that's not what we want. Um, so I, I think this is a good example. Obviously, this is a state level. Um, but if you kind of think about the things that we've had with Chad Frazier, with Stuart Hurley, kind of hearing about this, the potential for Colorado legislation being rolled out federally. Um, some states are going to make th these decisions, which are bad, in our opinion. In Texas, we have to start thinking about how are we being proactive to, I don't want to use the word decriminalize, that's not the right way to think about it, but mimic what some of these other states have done, which is push back on the federal oversight uh, and done, state, done, done things at the, th at the state level. And um, if we're not careful, we'll wake up one day and we will get, um, you know, speaking of Stuart, there he is, um, more this is from Stuart. More rules, more on the Colorado rules getting worse. New bill in Congress and panic on all major EMPs. Right. So there you have it. In Colorado, they're pushing it. Right. So they're going to make it worse in Colorado. That might be adapted nationally. In Texas, we have to figure out what we're going to do or we'll get the Colorado rules here. Yeah. So what you're saying, Ryan, is that oil is the new weed. That's uh, that's basically what you're what you're saying, right? Yeah. What, what's um, it's, it's the green. Back is the new, we're, we're, hey, we're going green. We're going green. Yeah. We're going Every, green. We're, we're going, going green. green. <laughs> yeah, call it Liberty Green. We're gonna we're gonna <laughs> give the feds. The feds. All right. Well, uh, yeah, that's interesting, Ryan. So as I was reading, I know it's more to do with what's going on in Michigan and Canada, uh, but my interest in it was the state of a pipeline. Um, the safety of investing in a pipeline. So if you're somebody and you have a, you know, a spare hundred million and you want to invest it somewhere, I know a good podcast, but do you want to put it in uh, do you want to put it in a pipeline? Do you right. want to, do you want to go invest in something like that? If somebody like Whitmer can just come out and say by fiat, we're not going to let you uh, use this as a transmission line anymore. Because if that's the case, nobody in their right mind is going to invest in, in pipelines. If, if, somebody like that can just go and shut it down. So uh, my interest in that article was like you is trying to figure out how can, um, you know, these Southern companies look at that and be involved in it in such a way that we can help start developing not only policies here, but also arguments in general that will prevent the government from squashing, you know, the, the profitability of, of these investments. Right. I mean, I think, I think that's a great point and I'm not sure, you know, we can't have much impact on Michigan, obviously. And so I think that's, I think that's kind of the, the, the problem is that, you know, to your point is, do you want to invest in something that's going to come through a, a Northern state, uh, a more liberal state and Michigan's not a, a liberal state like we would generally consider them, but um, more liberal than you know, Texas is for say, 
Um, do you want to invest in a, in a project that, that they can? Because if I understand correctly, most of the pipeline in the state is uh, is governed by the feds, but this is this a four-mile stretch or a few-mile stretch, which is governed by uh, the state. And so that's where she's, she's um, hopping on this from. So, you know, you, you have that. But you also have to think about this. Um, you know, during the Trump administration, what did we see? We saw tariffs on international projects products coming into the states so we have to stop start thinking about these issues as not necessarily um a liberal or a republican issue it's what is good policy and that good policy should transfer from administration to administration we were critical of the tariffs when trump announced them and we're critical of this the same way because the principle is the same and so uh in, in texas we have to really stop and think what we think good policy is and isn't um and i'll go back to kind of what i always say is who is the injured party who are the people involved start there and work your way out in this case, you know, is there really an injured party? It doesn't sound like it. It sounds like um, the state has the claim to this area, and Whitmer is wanting to probably please some folks. Um, and so she, she's getting that. Now, in Texas, do we want those type of things happening? And, and we just have to stop thinking about it. It will take, it, you know, regardless of this particular thing, Josh, um, it the money will leave oil and gas on some level because folks are going to be afraid to invest, right? If you, yeah. if you, if you don't know if your pipeline will um, be successful or be able to operate, then they will pull out eventually. Yeah. I mean, four miles out of a 645 mile line, one tyrant can come in and say, you can't use this four miles anymore. If, if that's able to stand, my goodness. Uh, I mean, these pipelines are not, uh, cheap playthings, man. A lot of people spend a lot of time and a lot of money invested in this. And there's a lot of people that stand to lose a lot by her saying that. So I'm, based on what I'm seeing, uh, Canada is not going to allow it to happen. They're going to keep moving forward. I'm just not sure how the, the politics is going to play out. But supposedly it's all going to be settled in court. Uh, so definitely something to keep an eye on is it, it will affect, it will affect pipelines in general. And, and that's the point with Trump is that bring up Trump is that you, you had the tariffs which were put on by the Trump administration. President Trump put them on by himself, right? Um, yeah. And so one thing that we we have to talk about policy is is do you want the executive branches to have this much power to where the government can do this stuff, to where the president can do this kind of stuff, um, or do you want this to be through legislative mandate where it's uh, you know a congressional bill that has to be passed? And so that's that's part of this equation here is do you want the governors or the president um, to have this type of authority uh, to do these things. I'm not a constitutional scholar or don't pretend to be or anything. It's just, it's just, it's a, there's a philosophical question at hand that goes to how we want to push this agenda as long as professionals. Agreed. Well, uh, Ryan, one of the big news stories that I saw that it's, it's actually came out last week, but we didn't pick it up in the roundup. Uh, Nacero is planning to build a $7 billion gasoline manufacturing facility near Penwell. Um, it's announced by Odessa Development Corp and Nacero Inc. Uh, so Houston-based Nacero has a 2,600-acre site at Penwell west of Odessa for the new facility. It will manufacture lower-carbon gasoline from natural gas, the first in the U.S. to make gasoline from natural gas, and the first in the world to do so with carbon capture. Uh, so this is a, this was a, a big, a big announcement in my opinion, right? I mean, this is, uh, I think big for, for the area. I know that, you know, jobs have been coming back, but things like this are always great to see because there's a lot of jobs that are going to be brought in by a facility like this. Um, and in general, I think it's good that we have these gasoline manufacturers, 
that are starting to try to utilize that natural gas for that purpose. So um, good to see that all around. So I, I was pretty excited. Yeah, I remember looking at a project um, a few years back that was going to take natural gas. Uh, this is back when the you know the flaring was such a big issue. It was going to take mm -hmm. that pipeline and, and run to a truck stop and then convert to gasoline. And I never got into the nuts and bolts of the viability or how it worked or if it was a good thing or not. So I'd kind of forgot about that to the story come back. So if we have a listener out there who's kind of in this space, um, or maybe our esteemed guest who's about to come on might know, we'd love to hear more about this because it was interesting at the time and it just fell apart for uh, no real reason, just not, not 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 enough interest. But if you know something about turning natural gas into gasoline and that process, we'd love to have you on. But that being said, we do have our guest. Let's go ahead and get him up here on the big screen. There he is. Can you hear us, sir? Yes, I can. Can you hear me? Yeah. Why don't you go ahead and bring and introduce yourself so everyone is familiar with you? Yeah, my name is Max Gagliardi. I'm uh, one of the co-founders of Ancova Energy. We've got a group of service companies. We do a number of different things. We've got a uh, gas marketing, oil marketing business. We do uh, consulting and advisory. And then we've also got a midstream entity that we raise capital for. I'm also uh, got a little podcast that I do called the Talk Energy Podcast. It's uh, fairly fledgling. Been doing it since here, kind of the beginning of this year. And appreciate you having me on, Ryan. Yeah, well, it's good to get you on. Um, and so what, just out of curiosity, what made you want to get into the podcast space? Um, yeah, it's been a uh, it's been a bit of a journey. So I have a little brother that has a podcast and he's been doing it for about a year now. I think he just had his year anniversary. And so he just kind of pushed me to do. He saw all the benefits that he was getting from having one. He was like, look, man, I'm meeting all these people and I'm getting to have these conversations. I'm learning. Uh, expanding the network. And he's like, this is really something you should consider doing. And to be honest, at the time, I just didn't have the social media presence. I'd been kind of dark on most social medias. I didn't even have like a profile picture on LinkedIn there for a minute. I just was kind of uh, uh, just not doing what I probably should have been doing in the social space and had been a little cynical around it. And as it, but then was noticing it evolving and noticing, you know, more quality content specifically on LinkedIn and some of these other platforms and thought, okay, well, you know, uh, maybe the embarrassment or the fear of putting yourself out there when you see like all the TikTok videos and stuff going on, that was like really silly. I was like, you know what, if people, if this is mainstream to do the things that I'm seeing every day, then having like a conversation or a professional conversation about what I do uh, or with somebody else in the industry, I was like, that's probably not so bad. And so I think that it was just kind of hearing my brother preaching the benefits of it, seeing the evolution of digital media and then really looking at myself in the mirror and being like, what are you doing to reach people? What are you doing to get, you know, to have new conversations, to get outside of your comfort zone? And I wasn't real happy when I put that under the microscope about I was what I was doing. And so I spent about six months or three months, kind of three to six months seriously prepping to do it, uh, like buying gear and like mentally getting myself ready to do it. And then kind of launched it, started recording episodes back in like November of, uh, of last year and then and launched it at the beginning of this year. So it's been a, uh, it's been a fairly new thing, but it's been fun. Well, Josh and I set the bar pretty low, so don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> we make sure that no way you guys are out there pioneering the space. So it's, it's good to see, like when you see other people uh, doing it, it makes it a lot easier. Uh, Cause you see, like you see the proofs in the pudding, like you see people having great conversations and, and it's entertaining and it's informational. And so I think, you know, stuff like what you guys are doing is what helped me get there. Uh Oh, here we go. The old man himself is here. Uh, Brian Mon, congrats on your podcast. Uh, good to hear from you, Thanks, Brian. Man. Uh, so you're in the midstream space. What's kind of the state of the, the midstream market right now? Uh, you know, we had on uh, Shad Frazier, I think it was last week, kind of talking about what he's seeing. What are you guys seeing? 
Man, it's a little bit tough, to be honest. I mean, midstream is something that is a derivative of the upstream space. And, you know, for a lot of reasons, people want to classify it as maybe something standalone. But when I look at it, a lot of times I look at it as a bet on the resources uh, and then not just the resources that underlie those assets, but the the pace of development of those resources and uh, and the needed capacity and the needed services that have to be provided. And so when you have a big downturn like we had, you had a lot of uh, midstream assets that were tied effectively to upstream producers or what their activity levels were. When those activity levels drop off, it doesn't take a lot of math or, you know, it doesn't take, it's not sophisticated to say that it makes it challenging to make good returns or to have projects that you thought uh, were underwritten under some, uh, you know, like activity assumptions that just didn't materialize. And so that's made it tough the last couple of years. But prior to that, I mean, uh, just a real, like a brief history of midstream in the modern shale era, you kind of had uh, back in the kind of mid, mid to late 2000s, really things, you know, back then contract structures were a lot different. I mean, I think midstreams were viewed as more of kind of a, you know, a lot of these guys had kind of risk-free or, you know, hedged contracts where they got take or pay, or they got like guarantees or commitments from producers to develop assets. And, you know, you typically would be a big blue, blue chip producer and they would sign up for an MVC, which is a minimum volume commitment or some type of, Hey, I'm going to backstop this project. As the shale stuff started heating up, you got, you saw guys kind of leaning in, taking more and more risk and, doing things on like, for example, acreage dedication. So maybe moving away from, I'm going to get a guaranteed payment, but I'll just, you know, you'll be my, I'll be your sole provider for this specific acreage area. And so they shifted a little bit more of the risk to the midstream. And then you saw kind of in the beginning part of last, the last decade uh, with areas, you know, really ramping up guys getting even more risk on saying, I'll do it for an acreage dedication and I'll cut my fees. Uh, Yeah, there you go. Best school, Oklahoma state. Uh, that's right. Go pokes. Uh, but so you basically saw guys getting even more risk on by cutting their rates and taking more risk contractually. And then you got to kind of the midway part of last decade. So kind of 2015, 16, 17, things got really crazy in the midstream space. And you had guys actually doing what we like to call pay to play. Maybe that's a little bit cynical way to, the way to put it, but guys were actually going out and it was the reverse of what was happening the prior decade where producers were paying and committing to upstream guys to get stuff done. And it got all the way to where midstream guys were actually paying upstream guys to do business with them. They were you know, cutting people checks to go and get acres dedications and get people to, and to agree to do their projects without, with very little, if any, sometimes backstops to that. And so you just had this, a lot more risk piling on in the midstream space in terms of the contractual structures and the fees that the people were to agree to. And it was all kind of predicated on those things just going up and up and up in terms of production. And, and in some areas like the Permian that was playing out, you know, prior to COVID. Uh, but in a lot of er other areas, you were starting to see some distress. Like for example, in Oklahoma, which is in our backyard, a lot of midstream guys were even in 2019 looked like they could be left holding the bag just because activity had stalled and then started to drop off. And then COVID hit, and I think accumulation of all those things over the last 15 years have put the midstream, specifically the gathering and processing or the GNP space, in kind of a tough spot right now. I mean, downstream, and there's, I mean, when you say midstream, it's a loaded question, but I'm talking primarily near the wellhead uh, between kind of gathering the wells and taking them to the market uh, is what I'm referring to midstream. I'm, I'm, I'm separating it when you get to like downstream with residue gas or NGLs. Right. So that's, that's kind of the state of things. It's challenged, uh, outside of, you know, these really the sweet spots where people are actively drilling. Okay. And 
while we're at it, be sure to go download it, Max's podcast, uh, Talk Energy. And while you're on iTunes, go ahead and give your boys over here at the Text One Guest Podcast a five-star rating review. We haven't gotten right. any. Gosh, we, we need some more. Um, so we're on our quest for 400. And so there we go. Um, okay, so you talk about this kind of this gathering. Um, you, like, let's keep it close to the wheelhead. I like that. You know, I think it was in 20, was Josh, 2017, 2018, you know, I think it was Pioneer come out and said, hey, man, we're, we're going to run a capacity course. There's some longer lines involved. What's kind of the the lead lag time we're seeing here as production, you know, because um, you'll have, you know, drilling will ramp up, the pipelines will get full, and the pipelines will get, you know, have capacity. And so where are we at right now? Are, are there plenty of pipelines out there to kind of carry stuff? I mean, obviously, as they're drilling new wells, you have to connect some flow lines. But um overall do we feel like we've got plenty of spare capacity for quite some time or do we think no if um you know we keep up uh increasing production by the end of the year we might get a pinch any, any read on that yeah well i've always said that uh the question how much capacity is there is like the most loaded question uh for a midstream person or only, in the oil only, and gas space only the easy ones on this show only the easy yeah ones. i think it depends on what kind of capacity you're talking about so if you're at the wellhead you've got gathering capacity and to lay a new gathering line uh, for a well, it doesn't take too much time depending on the area. You know, some of it's right away and how quick can you get uh, the land, you know, right away leased up to be able to go to get to the well. But but typically a new well connect, you can you can get there and call it uh, two to two to four months is a reasonable time frame uh, to get a well connected or to get new gathering capacity. But then you've got things like compression and compression capacity. It's a little bit longer lead time. You, you're talking about upwards of six months potentially uh, to get a new station uh, a new unit set. It could be longer, it could be shorter, just depending on where you're at and things like that. And then if you've got like a cryo plant uh, or processing capacity, these can be anywhere from, you know, 12 to 24 months uh, lead time on those. And I think, and then you got downstream projects like residue lines coming out of the Permian and residue is just the, the raw product for people that don't know that term, but basically just the methane once it's, the NGLs are stripped out. And those can take years and they're billions of dollars. And so I think that they are up to a billion, billion plus dollars. And I think that on the downstream side, there was a lot of constraints in the Permian specifically. And we'll talk about the Permian because it's kind of the center of the universe in terms of uh, activity. And, you know, it was under, it was underbuilt for residue takeaway for a downstream takeaway. And now that's caught up and you can see that in the price of Waha and where natural gas is trading in the basin. It's, it's definitely kind of at parity to some of these other basins were there for a minute. I mean, it was negative because people couldn't move their product. It had even gone through periods of being negative or being very depressed. And so I think that the downstream capacity has been built out. I think on the NGL side, you've got a, a you know, capacity that's come online. We saw kind of an NGL uh, fractionation squeeze there at the uh, 18, 19 timeframe where a fractionation capacity at Mont Bellevue specifically was getting tight. And now that's opened up and there's been, you know, a bunch of projects that have come on new, new lines that have come on. So really, I, I think that the capacity for the most part downstream is adequately built. And in a lot of basins, it's overbuilt. You know, you see it going in most of these basins. It's a, it's a similar theme, right? It's the Barnett gets hot, the Haynesville gets hot, whatever the play is, the Northeast. And then there's this mad rush of infrastructure investment. And then we have a downturn and then there's like excess capacity and guys are kind of left holding the bag if they underpin those projects and they're paying unused demand charges to, to fill those. So I think it's okay in the Permian, you know, look, if activity comes back to where it was, could there be more projects needed at the larger scale, like new plants and new downstream lines? Like, yeah, eventually there will be, but I think we're okay today and where the projections are. And then in terms of closer to the wellhead, 
it's going to be kind of these well connects and compression or your main bottlenecks. And those are relatively shorter lead time. And I think guys can get that. So I don't think that there's going to be probably any regulator in the near term. And some of these plays around midstream capacity, I think you're actually in the opposite boat where you've probably got excess capacity due to just the drop off from COVID. Yeah, that's kind of what I was uh, anticipating. Uh, I think, you know, they had a bad, I think they called it the Permian bottleneck or something like that back in 2018. A couple questions for you. So uh, earlier last year, was it this year? Man, they all kind of run together. Um, The Keystone Pipeline uh, was was shut down uh, by the Biden administration. And here recently, I believe, uh, I believe it was this week, there was news that Governor uh, Whitmer, is actually going is ordered Enbridge to shut down a uh, line five, which is a 645 mile line that, that goes from Canada to um, to the U.S. Midwest. Um, there's a four mile little section in there that she said is in an environmentally sensitive area. And so she's in she's given an order for Canada's Enbridge to completely shut down this line, 645 mile line. Um, the question I have you know, earlier was. How does it? How is this going to impact the risk from an investor standpoint? So you mentioned that risk has already been piling up on the midstream side. If and I'm not saying she's going to be successful in this. I mean, the Keystone that was a bad that was bad. I think for uh, just from the optics, if if I was going to go invest in something and they shut it down, but this would be even worse in my opinion because if you can say that someone can pick a four mile section of a 600 mile line and shut it down because of some sort of political thing, right? I mean, would you want to invest that kind of money into that sort of infrastructure? So I guess that's kind of my question with the political landscape, ESG, you know, environmental sensitivity, how, what are, what are the, what are the challenges for the midstream side on the investment side? I mean, it's good that we have all the infrastructure uh, that we have, you know, excess capacity, but at some point we're going to need more capacity. Will, will there be investors to do it? Well, there's already a lot of risk uh, in general in oil and gas, as you know, in this kind of overarching governmental or, uh, you know, just whatever, however you want to classify it, political risk, governmental risk or regulatory risk is real. And for some of these projects, like you're talking about, these are kind of downstream, as I would classify, uh, like a Keystone XL is kind of a mega, mega project or a downstream project, long haul uh, capacity type projects. And those are tough to get done regardless. I mean, you got to have, they're typically multi years of permitting and, you know, surveying and right away and environmental studies that have to be done. And then, you know, I think that that layered on top of the fact that someone could come in potentially retrospectively and shut in a line, it makes it even harder uh, to get those things done and approved. And so this is certainly something into the future. They've picked, they're picking on pipelines. And I think that it's going to make it harder for some of these bigger projects, especially things that cross borders, whether that be, uh, you know, national borders or even with state borders uh, or, or projects that go across, uh, whether that be like an Indian reservation, like the DAPL issue that's happening uh, where you've got, you know, anytime it's crossing some kind of border and there's different jurisdictions where they can, you know, they can make arguments or protest. Uh, it's going to make these projects harder to do and it's going to make investors, you know, less uh, comfortable doing them. But I think even beyond just the regulatory stuff, investors are already less comfortable with oil and gas. And so, from the midstream capital side, raising capital and deploying capital, it's a space that we're pretty plugged into. Uh, and, you know, we kind of know where the sentiment's at. And the sentiment's not good for oil and gas across the board, whether you're upstream or midstream. And there's this very real view that uh, oil and gas is kind of phasing out. And this is what these people believe. And, 
you know, you got to remember a lot of these large institutional investors are not sophisticated oil and gas people. They're, you know, if it's the uh, Michigan's welders union, uh, you know, pension plan, like th there's actual welders on the pension plan board that are making the decisions on where they invest. Or if it's the teachers, you know, whatever of California pension plan, there's actual teachers making these decisions. And not all of them, some of them are investment professionals, but you got to realize that the people that control a lot of the endowments and what we would call LP money, money that's these large institutional investors, uh, it's a very negative anti, it's a very negative oil and gas environment right now. And it makes it very difficult uh, to get any investment dollars uh, from these groups. Now, I think that that can change, you know, part of it, you can pick on the ESG movement and say, hey, this is driving a lot of this. And to be fair, it is right now, it's driving it. But Beyond that, guys, it's just returns have not been good. So if returns had been really good, yes, there would be the ESG movement and that would be dampening things as it is today. But if returns had been crushing it and it was, you know, if oil and gas and energy had been outperforming every other sector for the last 10 years, you would still see an ease of flow of, uh, of an easier flow of capital into the industry. But you take the ESG movement and you couple that with, uh, just the returns not being good. And you can argue a lot of reasons for the reason for that. I mean, we're a commodity business and commodity cycles are vicious, but combine those two together and it makes it a very challenging time to raise money uh, for any projects. Even these ones like you're talking about were on the pipeline side where things can get shut down retroactively, which is a pretty crazy world uh, yeah. to live in. So let's, let's talk about the I'm losing you, man. You're cutting out. I can't yeah, hear me. I can't. I can't hear him either. Hey, Ryan, you're you're cutting out a little bit, man. I don't know if it's internet or. Can you hear me, Max? I can hear you fine. Yeah. Okay. In the. Oh, we lost him. Yeah, let me send him a message. That's the stuff with the live back? stuff, man. It's tough. There, oh, he, is. there he is. Hey, I'm back. Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't know. I, I, I could see you guys. You could see me, but okay. Let's press on. There we go. I can you hear good? you good. Yeah, I can hear you. So I was I was saying that you kind of have investors and they're, they're going to hear pipeline. You know, they're, they're going to think Dapple. They're not going to sort of think, you know, a little flow line here off of a well. Um, one of the things that Josh and I have been a big proponent of is a, the industry needs to make sure that it is leading the charge on regulation. Uh, and now we're not big regulatory regulatory guys, but we're saying that whatever it should be, uh, we need to be leading the charge there. Um, sure. and also we need to understand that federal regulation is going to be more cumbersome. Um, and so if you look at, um, you know, how do we uh, pro properly handle these things? We want to handle it on the local level. Um, and one of the things that's always frustrated me about the oil and gas industry, and it's not just the oil and gas industry, but it feels like, and I'm curious your, your, your take on this, is that we don't really, we're not really concerned about identifying the injured party. We're concerned about, you know, this regulatory body here, that regulatory body here, making sure we're, we're appeasing them. Um, and so when you have something that goes wrong, the injured party might get compensated for um, on some level, but they're not really who we're concerned about. I know there's a, there's a thing on LinkedIn the other day. Someone was posted about uh, some leaking whales and kind of caught an uproar. How do we as the industry make sure that we're taking care of the injured party, which is the landowner, right? They're yeah. the first one who's injured um, um, far more than anything else, because that is, to me, the, the best way to make sure that we're doing things the right way. The right way is by looking for the injured party, 
taking care of them. And then we could take that as being environmentally responsible because you're being responsible to the landowner. Um, how do we take that message and make sure that we're, we're handling, um, doing right by people the right way? Yeah, I think I think we do a pretty good job, honestly. I mean, I know that you're going to see the main things that get highlighted anytime there's a spill or a, a pipeline explosion or a, uh, heaven forbid, an offshore incident. Those make the headlines. But I think that if you look at the I think what's important is to look at the evolution of the narrative. And so if you look at the narrative, when I started in my career back in uh, 2009, 2010, this is about a little over 10 years ago. Uh, it was very focused on these kind of mi- what I would call micro or land owner issues. And they're still prevalent today. I mean, this stuff still gets at the local level and at the state level, these things are still, uh, you know, focused on. But I think what happened was oil and gas companies are probably one of the safest. I mean, I, our industry is incredibly, the track record of safety and how clean we are from an environment, environmental standpoint is really good, in my opinion. Uh, some people might be able to argue that, but I think that if you really look at the numbers, most companies uh, that are doing the right thing have put a ton of focus on safety and on environmental and have done a great job specifically over the last decade, even really making strides to have very little incidents, very little spills. And then when there are spills or an incident, it is cleaned up. And especially if it's a big company, I mean, they're putting a ton of focus on this stuff. And I think they've done a great job, but what you saw was at the national level, you had movies like Gasland, and it was this fracking is contaminating water And so this was a big, you know, that was the big pushback, the big narrative, not that climate change and these things weren't still there. They were there, but, uh, but I think you saw a lot more publicity around kind of these micro land use issues. And I've seen a shift away from that because I think that the track record speaks for itself. And when you can point to the tens of thousands or thousands of wells fracked and you can say, look, there is no statistically significant evidence here of anything from an air or water pollution standpoint. And there'll be people that say that there is, and I don't, you know, I don't think those studies hold a lot of merit. I think that the the data is pretty conclusive that we are very clean when it comes to extracting energy, Uh, especially when you look at us compared to the world for oil and gas. I mean, we're just, we have an incredible record of being clean and environmentally friendly. And so I feel like we've done a good job focusing on that. I agree with you that that should be the primary focus at, at first and foremost, which is the tangible and who are you impacting? What communities are you impacting? And that's everything from road safety, because let's face it, there's a lot more big heavy rig trucks on the road. People get in accidents, things like that. That's something that's serious to contamination, to spills, all those things that should be focused on. And I think we do that. I think where the narrative has shifted at the political and at the national and the talking head, the media level is to climate change, because climate change is not based on what's actually happened. It's based on predictions of the future which are incredibly hard to refute, right? Like you can point to 10,000 wells fracked and say, look, we didn't contaminate any water. And that's bad news for the Sierra clubs of the world. It's really bad news because that was their platform. Right. And so now it is, Hey, well, I know that's, you know, they're still going to pick on oil and gas for that stuff. And that'll always be issues. And it should be, those should be forefront issues is who are we impacting, but this broader narrative of uh, the climate or the environment that it's just, it's bad for the earth. You can't really point to any data that backs us up that says that, Hey, we're not doing that because it's all based on forward projections. And I think that's where we're facing a bit of a crisis as an industry is that now it is the specter. It's this future boogeyman of this world in a hundred years or a thousand years. That's a really hard narrative to combat. So I think we need to continue to do what you're doing, what you're talking about, which is the people that are impacted. I think we do a decent job at that, actually a good job at that, but into the future, I don't know that that's going to be a marginalized narrative. I think this more macro climate narrative is going to be what drives a lot of the policy stuff. Yeah, and just on that, I'll, I'll say I wrote a piece on this a while back that the the irony 
of all of this is um, who you're a really smart guy, Max. You, you can help me out here. Who determines where the roads are built, like the big interstates? Yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. I don't know the answer. Where the interstate? You mean the pipelines or the? No, no, no. The like, like, like I thirty five, I twenty. That'd be the federal government, right? Yes. That's who, who determines where the ports are built at? I'm assuming government, right? Yeah. What about the airports? Uh, I don't know. Is that municipal level or is that still the government? It, it'd be government, right? What yeah. about big facilities? Who 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 determines whether we can build those or not? Uh, what government. kind of facilities? Yeah, government. Yeah, like like a uh, like a. Um, Refining facilities, you know, you get permits. Yeah, right? you got to have it all permitted. Right? You got to have. So, sure. what's ironic here, to your point about these four projections, is that on one hand, you have the government who is the single greatest uh, enabler of climate change. By, the, by the, right, because if they're saying that all these things are bad, emissions from cars, um, these these power plants, like they're the ones who have been allowing us to have these things, and now they're the ones who are saying that. Well, well, that was a mistake. And so I think that from our standpoint, we, 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 we talk about regulation. This was a minute ago. We have to be careful because the government enabled all those cars on the roads. The government enabled all these airplanes. The government enabled all these facilities, these, these ports, everything is there some, some kind of government per permit or, um, you know, a pipeline, whatever it is. So the government has enabled all this stuff. And now the government is going to these forward projecting models saying, well, Oh my gosh, this is terrible. Well, they weren't very good at getting us, if, if you just assume their models are correct, they weren't very good at understanding that to get us to where we are today. Why should we trust they're going to be the ones to handle it moving forward? Um, and so it's a tough argument to make because on the other side of the equation, no one wants to admit what I just said is true, which is that the government actually was the one who enabled all this stuff to happen. Like they're, they're, they're the if, if you just say that climate change is going to kill us all, well, the government's the one who promoted all this stuff. Yeah, they promoted we could have went back to horse and buggy. They well, yeah, yeah, they promoted it because it makes people's lives better. I mean, people want highways. People want to drive cars. You know, the oh, poorest, the poorest people, the poorest people want cheap energy. I mean, this is what is prosperity, right? That that's right. why they promoted it was to promote prosperity, which has panned out. I mean, we're the most of successful course. country in the world, I would argue. I mean, people. Yeah. Argue no, I, me, I, no I, I'm not. I'm not denying any of that. I'm saying is that the government is looking at these studies and saying we have to stop this. And my point is that there's been people clamoring about climate change for some time and the government has promoted all these things that are now going to kill us. Um, and so now we're saying we want to hand over the reins to the government to fix the problem that they enabled. And so I, I agree with you. I just think it's, it's, just, it's just a weird spot that society's in when, uh, if you want to assume that all these models are correct, which, which I don't obviously, but if you do, then but even if they are correct, we have technology that, I mean, like that's the thing is that my argument is always getting back to you're saying the people that are impacted and it's not just so take it from the community level to the macro level. Well, what are the impacts? Okay. Here's the impact. We're having rising CO2 levels. And I think everybody or most people agree that that has an impact on the planet. Okay. Like that's something that we can look at. We can work on. Sure. And then, but then it becomes like, what do we do about it? And I think that's where the rub is. And so getting back to the investors and the not wanting to invest in oil and gas, I mean, the reality is like oil and gas is going to be here. And so can we make it cleaner, more efficient, more sustainable? I think there's things that we can do. And we've already done that as an industry. Let's continue to do that. But where I feel like it breaks down is when those proposals are rejected. And then you have proposals that are, hey, well, we'll just shut down this pipeline or we'll just ban fracking on federal lands. And then you look at what the outcomes from that are. And the outcomes from that are that it's actually dirtier for the environment because now we're importing. Sure. I mean, look at California. They're well, importing all their oil from places that are much dirtier than them producing it locally. They have great, I mean, I would say great. They have strict regulations in California, but their oil field is clean. It's a very clean oil field. They're not, you know, there's not a lot of pollution and not a lot of things happening in their oil field, yet they're wanting to shut that all down to import it from countries that have terrible regulations. So it gets back to like, 
who are we impacting? And then what are we doing to make that better? And I just don't see, I see a lot of uh, political theater versus actual solutions that will actually help the planet. And that's where I'm saying, look, I want to help the planet. Let's do things that make sense and that work, not well, that, things that are just for show. I think that makes my point exactly is that here the government enables um, us to have cars and, and stuff. And that's all good. I'm, I'm, I'm pro energy. Like it's great. And then at the same time, they shut down a pipeline so that we can put it on a train and, and transport, which is far more, uh, it's far more environmental impact than a pipeline does. Right. Uh, and so w- there, there is this kind of this, this spot where we're at, where you have these investors who are you know, pushing this ESG narrative. I don't think we're doing a good job of messaging about how we got to where we are, why we're so, why we're so rich as a nation, um, all the positive benefits. And then, Oh, by the way, pointing out that, that if you want to take a lot of these, these models and predictions, that um, it's not just saying that they've been wrong because we all understand that they're wrong, but why they're wrong and why they're so far off and, and the complex modeling and, and all that. So anyways, we can get to that another time. I know we're up against the clock here. So why don't you tell folks where they can find you at uh, one more time before we let you go? Yeah, so you can check out the podcast at talk.energy or you can check, that's the website. And then also, the, you know, the best way would just be to go to the YouTube channel, uh, just Google or go to YouTube and search Max Gagliardi or Talk Energy. And you'll find it there. And I'd love for you to hit the subscribe button. You can also follow us on your favorite podcast app. And if you're interested in the what I do professionally outside of podcasting, you can look at ancova.com. That's A-N-C-O-V-A.com. And I'm sure there's ways we can help you there too. But I appreciate you guys uh, having me on. Yep. It's good to have you on. And best of luck in your podcast journey. And Brian, good to hear from you again, brother. Um, thanks, Max. Thanks, guys. Yeah, appreciate it, buddy. All right, Mr. Shelton. Whoop, there we go. Sorry about that, the internet earlier. I, I could tell it was flickering. And so, anyways, but yeah, it started doing some pretty hard flickers. <laughs> <laughs> We're doing it live. That's this part of the problem. So, uh, part of the part of the risk. All right, Ryan. We have two stories for our roundup today. Before we wrap things up, the first one uh, is oil surges with U.S. demand bump driving global rebound optimism. Uh, so I believe oil was up around, it was 64 a minute ago. Yeah, still 64.27 at this particular moment. Um, OPEC, that's going to be something to watch. Uh, there, There's a lot of optimism out in the industry right now. I say optimism, it's measured optimism, I think, as Reed uh, put it the other day. Um, they're still, you know, people are still trying to be wise with their investments and how much they produce. But there is a, a degree of optimism. And last but not least, uh, Berkshire Hathaway defends a $8 billion proposal to build natural gas plants in Texas. Uh, There's 10 plants that they propose to build. This is to fix the issues of ERCOT and uh, in event of, uh, you know, these ice freezes uh, coming through Texas again. Uh, There's somebody else that actually proposed for $8 billion doing 11 natural gas plants. Not sure what they're going to do, but just wanted to, to link this and the show notes because uh, there may be some, you know, some opportunities in the energy sector here uh, coming with if either either of those projects gets approved. Your boy Buffett, your boy Buffett, look at him, look at him. He's a gangster. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Well, look, thanks for Max for coming on, and, um, and it was good to hear from Brian and Stuart and everyone else. Be sure to give us a five-star review because, you know, we need them. That's that's what keeps us going here at the Texas Podcast. And until next time, keep climbing.